Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where we explore the films of Ghostbusters director Ivan Reitman. I'm Ross May, and if you don't know who to call yet, I don't know what to tell you. You've had almost four decades to hear the song and figure it out. This is the big one, everybody. 1984 and Ghostbusters. In fact, we all know Ghostbusters is such a big thing, such a cultural phenomenon, that I'm splitting this into multiple episodes. I'm calling this one The Road to Ghostbusters, which will cover a lot of the production. Another episode will cover the music, promotion, and some facts that don't really fit into a narrative. And the third and fourth episodes will cover the movie itself. Everyone, this was a lot of work. I'll do the news when we get to the movie. For now, a few disclaimers from me. Item number one. It will surprise you to learn that I don't know absolutely everything about the film Ghostbusters. I know, I am just as shocked as you are. There are fans who know exactly who is operating which ghost puppet, what day a scene was filmed, lots of good information. If you are interested in even more facts, I'd recommend the audio commentaries available on the movie's disc releases, the book Making Ghostbusters by Don Shea. It's out of print, but you might be able to find a digital copy online. That's Making Ghostbusters. A more recent book, Ghostbusters Ultimate Visual History by Daniel Wallace, is another good one. And finally, a documentary, Cleaning Up the Town, Remembering the Ghostbusters, by Anthony and Claire Bueno. This frankly leads me to my second disclaimer. That documentary, Cleaning Up the Town, has been in development for years, and I haven't seen it yet. And I definitely look forward to watching it, but I'm kind of glad I haven't yet, so I won't just parrot the interviews from it. I've heard very good things about it, and if you get a chance, you should definitely watch it. Among other things, the Buenos conducted what I believe are the last on-camera interviews with Harold Ramis and Michael C. Gross. So it's special, and we're never going to hear any more of their thoughts on Ghostbusters after that documentary. What else? Another item. Number three, I guess. Sometime, somewhere in here, I'm going to get a fact wrong. I know, I know, how dare I? And it'll probably be something small, but it will happen. But then a heads up, the major players in Ghostbusters have sometimes given contradictory facts on the making of the movie as well. Just off the top of my head, Eddie Murphy as a Ghostbuster. For years, fans have all shared the idea that Winston Zedmore was originally meant to be played by Eddie Murphy. Makes sense, right? He's another big sensation to come out of Saturday Night Live, and by then he had done Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd. But here's the thing, Ivan Reitman has at times stated no, Eddie Murphy was not offered a role. Then in December of 2019, on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, Eddie Murphy said what fans had all believed, that he was indeed offered to be in Ghostbusters and only turned it down because he was tied up filming Beverly Hills Cop. We'll cover more of these little mysteries or debates as we go along. For the Eddie Murphy thing, there's obviously something there, but then maybe it's a case where an informal offer was made to Murphy, like he was told about the movie and a role, but he had to say no thanks before a real contract offer was even made to him. By the way, in the spring of 1983 when Ghostbusters was being developed in earnest, that was the same time Paramount finalized an exclusive contract with Eddie Murphy worth millions of dollars for multiple movies, not just Beverly Hills Cop. It's understandable Murphy wouldn't want to jeopardize his Paramount contract to be in an ensemble picture for Columbia. But back to the issue. It looks like Murphy wasn't technically offered any specific role for Ghostbusters, because early on the script had less defined characters and some different names. I don't think Ivan Reitman or Eddie Murphy are lying or even misremembering. I think they're both trying to express the facts as they see them. Dan Aykroyd wanted Murphy to be a Ghostbuster, and it didn't work out early on. So early that the roles weren't even nailed down. Meanwhile, Reitman remembers the production getting geared up, and Murphy was already not available. So, bringing this back to me, because of course I'm so important, at some point I'll repeat one of these items, and it'll be wrong, or some particular about it will be wrong. I beg forgiveness, and want to point out even some of the people there for the movies do the same thing. Oh, I guess my final bit. My item number... four... whatever. Unlike my other podcast entries, I might fast-forward through the basic story of Ghostbusters production. If it's on the Wikipedia page, say, I might zoom past it. Or in other words, if you have a 101 class knowledge of Ghostbusters, let's get into 201. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. 
The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. And indeed, let's get to it. You should know it's Genesis by now. The Ackroyd family in Ontario were all spiritualists and held seances and that sort of thing. Hey, if you want to get a deeper dive on that subject, I can recommend the recently departed Peter Ackroyd's, that's Dan's father, Peter Ackroyd's book, A History of Ghosts. It didn't convince me to start believing in ghosts, but it offers some insight if you want to know where Dan is coming from with his interest in the supernatural. So Dan started working on his script. This is another area where fans would all like to know all the particulars about. Oh, and hey, I'm going to continually be using the word Ghostbusters, when in his early drafts, we know Dan Aykroyd usually used the words Ghost Smashers. My reason for this is because the title was always a work in progress. I think Ghost Zappers was also suggested at one point, and notably, while they were filming the in-movie TV commercial, they also were trying out Ghost Stoppers and Ghost Blasters. So yeah, just for the sake of argument, I'll be saying Ghostbusters here, but Dan wasn't married to any one name. But yes, Dan's story. So first off, the story was set in the future, or maybe an alternate version of today, where ghosts are very real and removing them is just a fact of life. The focus is on three Ghostbusters, and their names were Venkman, Stance, and... Ramsey. You'd think that would equate to Venkman, Stance, and Egon Spengler, but apparently Ramsey was really more the Winston Zedmore character. But that almost doesn't matter. In making Ghostbusters, Ivan Reitman says that the three characters didn't have distinct personalities. It sounds like there were three of them just to be able to talk and make jokes to each other, but otherwise they're basically the same. So that needed to be fixed up. Another big element from Dan's first draft, Ghostbusters is already a company, and there are even competitors in the market. Huh, maybe an opportunity to use all those alternate names. Ghostbusters versus Ghost Smashers versus Ghost Zappers and on and on. The competition part is what always fascinates me the most. I wonder how another ghost-catching company would factor into the plot. Would they try to sabotage the main cast, or accidentally do something that triggers the giant problem, like maybe they summon Gozer or open the Ghostbusters containment unit? We just don't know. What are some elements that stayed from the first draft to the finished film? The Ectomobile, which was always a black car until right near production when they realized a white car would be more visible in the night scenes. There's a hungry ghost that's basically Slimer in there. A logo for the Ghostbusters company was there from the start. The proton packs were really smaller devices, and I can't confirm this now, but one time I read that the idea was the ghost zapping and trapping equipment would be powered by being in close proximity to the ghosts, that the equipment would actually use the energy the ghosts give off. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was present even in the early drafts, but apparently not at the finale. I find that interesting because the big threat, so Gozer, was going to have a genuinely scary giant form after the Marshmallow Man. I go back and forth on what makes more sense. The idea that Gozer is really a Lovecraftian horror with no definite body in our universe, that makes more sense and is funnier if its ultimate form is the Marshmallow Man. But there's a certain threatening or video game kind of logic, that Ghoster would one-up itself and become a huge skeletal monster after the Marshmallow Man is defeated. I prefer how it works in the finished movie, but I can see this alternate logic to Gozer, that maybe it should be scary right before the resolution. Doubling back on Dan Aykroyd's interest in the paranormal, here's what always fascinates me. Ghostbusters is almost like doing a parody of all the spooky stuff Dan is interested in. Think about it, most people have never heard of ectoplasm, and we'll get to ectoplasm in a future episode, but most people in 1984 don't know psychic terms, they don't know that the Ackroyds once hooked up radio parts to crystals in an attempt to commune with the dead. Yes, members of the Ackroyd family had tried that. In a different world, you'd almost think this content should all be presented in, I don't know, maybe a more standard special effects movie, maybe even a horror movie that happens to have a technical bent to it. I always find it interesting that since Dan was a comedian, what we got was Ghostbusters as a comedy, and here we're being introduced to all these ideas, some of which Dan Aykroyd really does believe in. Let's address the depressing part of the script writing. John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd's good friend, his best friend, died on March 5th, 1982. Bernie Brillstein managed both Belushi and Aykroyd. Oh, I want to make this clear. Bernie Brillstein was their manager. He was not their agent. 
Their agent was Mike Ovitz of CAA, Creative Artists Agency. I've spent a long time trying to figure out the real difference between those two roles, a talent manager and an agent, and I'll be going over that in a bit. Anyway, Belushi and Aykroyd both had a talent manager and an agent, and their manager was Bernie Brillstein. Brillstein lived in Los Angeles and actually saw Belushi twice on the day before Belushi's death. At around noon on March 5th, Brillstein got a call from Bill Wallace, a friend and employee of Belushi, that he found Belushi unconscious at the hotel bungalow he'd been staying at. Wallace wasn't actually sure if Belushi was dead, by the way. He called an ambulance, then his next call was to Bernie Brillstein, and Wallace said he thought Belushi was dying. It took a short time before paramedics confirmed that, yes, John Belushi had died. One of the first calls Brillstein made was to Dan Aykroyd in New York. They both agreed that Dan should rush to John's wife, Judy, so Dan was the one to tell her and stayed with her that day. I'm not going to go into greater detail on the ins and outs of John Belushi and his relationship with Dan. We might circle back someday on the podcast, but not for now. But let's talk about Belushi's relationship just with Ghostbusters. First off, about that day. In Making Ghostbusters, Dan says he was actually writing dialogue for Belushi when Bernie Brillstein called him. I find that interesting. Oh geez, I forget where I learned this, but multiple people I talked to also remember this interview. Dan was asked about an event in life he regretted. He said that John Belushi called him up on March 4th, but he was so mad at John's behavior with drugs that he didn't take the call, and that's what he regrets, and he never wants to ignore a loved one in distress again. So there are two memories Dan has. One is of being upset at John the night before and not taking his call, and the other is of him sitting at a typewriter writing dialogue for John in Ghostbusters when he gets the call about his death the next day. Huh. Look, maybe they're both entirely true. I do find it interesting for Dan to be so upset with his friend that he wouldn't talk to him over the phone and then went back to writing dialogue intended for John the next day. It's entirely possible, but it also goes to show that a lot of these details we share about Ghostbusters, about any event really, might have some fudged memories, or perhaps this shows that we're all complicated people. I don't know. This is all so I can drive at one of the big questions of the production. Was John Belushi supposed to play Peter Venkman? If you look at, you know, factoid lists about Ghostbusters, this is always one of the things listed. Quotation marks here. Quote, Dan Aykroyd wanted John Belushi to play Peter Venkman, but then John passed away, you know, end of quote. It sounds right, because even though Bill Murray and John Belushi have different energies, they're both leading men, and you can see them driving plots forward. Now here's the wrinkle. In the past, Ivan Reitman has been asked this question. I mean, it makes sense. He knew Belushi personally from National Lampoon shows and Animal House. And sometimes Reitman has shot down this suggestion. He has said no, he never remembers Belushi was going to play Peter. But, 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 Reitman does frame it that in Dan's early draft, Belushi was definitely meant to be in the movie. I think this is the same problem as the Eddie Murphy question. People have asked if Belushi would play Venkman, but early on Venkman was just a name on a page, and not really the character we know from the movie. So, if the question is, was Belushi going to play the same role and say similar lines to Bill Murray, then the answer is no. If the question is, was Belushi going to be a Ghostbuster, then the answer is yes. I think, we know the Venkman character because we know Bill Murray's performance, but working backwards to that first draft, we don't really have that yet. Venkman was just a name on a page, and not the character we see in the movie. You need Harold Ramis's input and Bill Murray's acting for Peter Venkman to even become a realized character. This is one of those hair-splitting, nitpicky moments that a person can get hung up on. But anyways, don't try to picture John Belushi doing similar things to what Bill Murray does in the movie, because that was never really the plan. So to repeat myself from earlier, Dan wanted Eddie Murphy and John Belushi to be Ghostbusters, but it's folly to try imagining them as particular roles we see in the film, or saying lines that we're familiar with. The project was too nebulous back when Dan was considering them. By the time the movie gets greenlit in 83, those actors are already not happening. Oh, I was going to save this for later, but I might as well do it now. You might have heard that Slimer is supposed to be John Belushi. Again, this makes sense. Slimer, called the Onion Head Ghost during production, gorges himself on food and drink and just makes a mess of things. Looking once again at making Ghostbusters, producer Joe Medjuk writes that one day, Ivan made an observation that Onion Head was like Bluto from Animal House, this gross party creature. 
He says Dan Aykroyd made no argument against this idea. Then this idea took on a life of its own and got around to the production staff. Like a ghost coming up? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> My point being, no, Slimer was not originally written or designed with John Belushi in mind. However, however, while sculptor Steve Johnson was in the middle of making many Slimer molds, he got word from the top that the Onion Head ghost was supposed to kind of be Bluto. He watched Animal House to get the right idea again, and yeah, Onion Head or Slimer definitely gorges himself on that food cart in the hotel hallway. Remember Bluto in the cafeteria in Animal House? Same idea. So, is Slimer supposed to be Belushi? Yeah, kinda. But the thing is, Slimer kind of existed in the script back even when John Belushi was still alive. There was early concept art for Slimer, where he looks mostly like how we see him in the film, then right at the end, yeah, Reitman is the first one to realize he's kind of the ghost of Bluto making a special appearance in the movie. So I don't know if that realization affected what we see on screen at all, but there you go. Onion Head wasn't supposed to be the ghost of Belushi, but right before filming, oh yeah, this is supposed to be our pal. So the honest answer is no at the writing phase, then kinda yes during production. That's honestly the best answer that can be given on Slimer. The Ghostbusters are back in theaters, and to celebrate you can get... Ghostbusters 2 items. Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all. Why not? You can show support for this podcast, and even get a great-looking No Ghost Peace logo and 10 Tops trading cards. Check out patreon.com slash rossmayrider. Items available while they last. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Okay, we've covered Dan Aykroyd's early script, some early casting. I've been mentioning Ivan Reitman, but we need to cover a couple more aspects before we get to the director proper. Oddly enough, this is sort of a dead end, but this is still important stuff that rarely gets mentioned. Let's stick with manager Bernie Brillstein. Dan Aykroyd was talking about Ghostbusters to him and had something of a script written up. I'm not sure if it's even the same draft Dan would later show Ivan Reitman. We'll get to that later. Here's the fact that a lot of fans overlook. Dan wanted Bernie Brillstein to be able to shop Ghostbusters around, so they came to a deal. Brillstein purchased the project of Ghostbusters, probably Ghost Smashers at the time, but you still get me, but Brillstein purchased the project from Dan for $1. That should demonstrate the level of trust Dan had in his manager. If Brillstein had been a sleazier guy, he could have sold Ghostbusters out from under Dan Aykroyd and pocketed some money. Of course, that would have been a stupid move. Brillstein would have lost Aykroyd as a client, and word could have gotten around that Brillstein could not be trusted. But still, I just want to point out that here, Dan Aykroyd really trusted this baby, Ghostbusters, with his manager Bernie Brillstein. Now here's where things get murky. In his memoir, Where Did I Go Right?, Brillstein says that he took the Ghostbusters project to Universal Studios and Sean Daniel. If you don't know who Sean Daniel is, he was one of the junior executives who really championed John Landis's career, and he was the one of the young guys who convinced Ned Tannen for Universal to do Animal House. But we're in 82 or 83 now. Brillstein says he forwarded Ghostbusters to Sean Daniel at Universal with the understanding that Daniel would show it to Dan Aykroyd's favorite director, John Landis. This would have made a lot of sense from Aykroyd's point of view. He became friends with Landis on Blues Brothers. Then Dan had a miserable time on the movie Neighbors and tried to angle it so that Landis would replace the director there. Then John Belushi died. And while Dan met his wife Donna Dixon filming Dr. Detroit, that movie tanked. Soon after, when Aykroyd's career was stalling and Hollywood jackals were saying he couldn't cut it without John Belushi, Landis insisted, insisted that Dan Aykroyd co-star opposite the hot new SNL talent, Eddie Murphy, in Trading Places. Dan Aykroyd felt that Landis saved his movie career. But now we are talking Ghostbusters. According to Bernie Brillstein, Universal and John Landis turned down Ghostbusters. That's kind of understandable from Universal. Ghostbusters would be costly. Once it did get into production at Columbia Pictures, a lot of people expected it to fail because it had such a huge budget. A couple things here, though. One, Brillstein is the only person I can find talking about the project being shown to Universal and John Landis. This makes sense, because, I mean, why would people talk a lot about something that didn't pan out? 
but I read his book, Where Did I Go Right? And when Brillstein talks about Ghostbusters, one of his most profitable ventures ever for himself, and he gets a lot of the facts wrong. He talks about Aykroyd pitching him ideas, then describes elements from the finished movie that only came about because of Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis. Bernie takes credit for introducing Bill Murray to Agent Mike Ovitz at CAA, despite the fact that Murray and Ovitz say that's not what happened. Why do I bring this up? Because I don't entirely trust Bernie Brillstein's telling of events before Ivan Reitman enters the picture. The Ghostbusters proposal absolutely might have gone to Universal and John Landis, but I also have a suspicion it might not have. This was 1982, or perhaps very early 1983, and John Landis had two movies coming out, Trading Places, co-starring Aykroyd, and the Twilight Zone movie, which had Aykroyd narrating. Uh, you might be seeing my point now. Dan Aykroyd was friends with John Landis, and he felt Landis revived his movie career, but in July of 82 there was the helicopter crash that killed three people. Landis's segment of the Twilight Zone movie would come out, and that's a controversial decision in itself, and he'd finished trading places because contracts were already in place for him to direct it over at Paramount. John Landis did not direct movies in 1983, and did not have a movie come out in 1984. This coincides exactly with the production and release of Ghostbusters as we know it. What I'm suggesting is the deadly Twilight Zone accident might have factored into Landis not directing Ghostbusters. For a year and a half, Landis was left wondering if he still had a career in Hollywood. In the book Outrageous Conduct, Art, Ego, and the Twilight Zone Case by Farber and Green, Landis spent the time bemoaning what was happening to his career and was much less concerned about three people having died. Real quickly, Landis hid the child actors from safety inspectors, ignored multiple people telling him about the danger of the stunt, and was heard instructing the helicopter pilot to fly lower. Then for a year and a half, he only expressed remorse to the media, but to friends he mostly whined about his career. Landis would even continue doing this years later, like to Eddie Murphy to pressure him into letting Landis direct Coming to America. So, to summarize all these points here, I can definitely see Universal passing on Ghostbusters. I find it much less likely that Landis himself would pass on Ghostbusters in 82 or 83, because that's exactly when he wanted work, not just for the work's sake, but to prove to everyone that he still had a career in Hollywood. What I think really happened during this time, when Bernie Brillstein was shopping around Ghostbusters, Bernie might have sent it to Universal, and they might have rejected it out of hand and not given Landis an opportunity. I've never even heard about Dan Aykroyd discussing Ghostbusters with John Landis, which makes me wonder if he ever talked to Landis about it at the time. For all of his friendship with John Landis, Dan Aykroyd himself might have been unsure if he would get to do another movie with Landis again. Regardless of the particular details, I do want to point out, in another world, or maybe a few years before or after the early 80s, it would have made sense for John Landis to be directing Ghostbusters, and probably at Universal. Imagine that, a Ghostbusters with no input from Ivan Reitman, no input from Harold Ramis, no Ramis or Bill Murray in the movie, you'd get a very different result, and maybe one that just came and went without a huge cultural impact. I just want us all to imagine that. Nothing is a sure thing, but following the trajectory of Blues Brothers and Trading Places, a Landis Ghostbusters was probably more likely for a while. Dan and Ivan Reitman have even said that despite knowing each other for years, they had never really worked together on anything except for Dan emceeing some of Ivan's TV production work in Toronto. Just to round out the John Landis story, the taboo was broken on him when he got to direct the 1985 movie Into the Night, which includes Dan Aykroyd. Surprise, surprise, the person defending the choice to hire Landis to the media was Sean Daniel, his champion for Animal House. And hey, also very telling, after that taboo was lifted and Landis was no longer verboten in Hollywood, Dan had him direct his next movie, Spies Like Us. I think that says something. John Landis was Dan's favorite director during the time. They obviously like working together. Yet for 83 and 84, I don't think Landis just politely turned Ghostbusters down. I think Dan either didn't send it his way because he knew it wouldn't happen then, or else Dan and Bernie Brillstein did send it, but a big-budget comedy wasn't in the cards for Landis then. John Landis and others on the Twilight Zone set were found not criminally responsible in a trial that ended in 1987. We now return to the main story. So Dan was plugging away at his script. He showed it to Bernie Brillstein, who wasn't able to make a go of it despite owning it for a dollar. 
Ha it actually sounds like he might not have even read Dan's early script. Dan presented a version to Reitman, someone we know who actually did read it. Ivan said he was, quote, exhausted reading it because there was ghostbusting on every page and it never let up, along with the problem that characters weren't really defined at all. Dan actually showed this early draft, or part of the early draft, to Bill Murray before it was greenlit, and he says Bill said it sounded good. By the way, I always assumed Bill had not read any of Dan's early drafts. I mean, look, he hadn't read Meatballs. We know he doesn't read a lot of the scripts to movies he's in. So this surprised me. In the 2020 interview Reunited Apart with Josh Gad, Bill says he actually did read this material and he enjoyed it. Huh. But the important part. Dan works at the script some more and sends, I guess we'll call it Dan's first finished draft to Ivan Reitman, though it doesn't sound finished or polished at all. Actually, Dan also included some drawings by his pal named John Devikis, including an early logo. Making Ghostbusters says Dan even got a jumpsuit and put some cheap props together and filmed himself to show off what it would look like. So there you go, Ghostbusters fans. Dan Aykroyd himself was cosplaying as a Ghostbuster before the rest of us. Ivan looked at this material and read the updated version of the script. So yes, Ivan had read two versions of the script now, and now he was getting a bit inspired. Dan and Ivan had lunch together at a Jewish delicatessen in LA, and Ivan laid out some ideas. Firstly, Dan should team up with Harold Ramis on a new script. Ah, we can see how Ivan's mind works now. Always get Harold Ramis to fix up a script, and always get Bill Murray to play the lead. But hey, this had proven successful so far for him, so why fix it if it ain't broke? Secondly, lose the future aspect to the Ghostbusters. Everything about competing businesses, and just about everything in going to other planets or dimensions. Hey, I want to stop for a quick second. Ivan always mentions that. The early draft had other planets and dimensions, and he always frames it as this outrageous idea. And maybe it was outrageous in cost, but I don't think it's that outrageous a concept compared to what we got. Think about it. The real movie does end with a gate opening to another dimension, this place Gozer comes from. I think maybe Dan's original idea was that the Ghostbusters would go through a gate into Gozer's dimension and fight ghosts and demons on the other side. Yeah, that's just me guessing, but I think a lot of fans assumed that the Ghostbusters would have been fighting ghosts on Pluto or something, and changing realities every 10 minutes, when really it was only one more step beyond the finished movie, zapping Gozer in its own dimension rather than just crossing the streams here on Earth. But yes, Ivan said simplify the movie, make it today, make it more relatable. Thirdly, Ivan said you don't start the movie with the Ghostbusters already existing, you should show how the business gets started. Okay, put on the brakes again. This is obviously the right choice, but I want to defend Dan's crazy instincts one more time. See, Dan was thinking start with the action, which is a good instinct to have. You don't want to start with something boring, you want to hook people in. Think of all the James Bond movies that start with a chase or a fight that's going to be unrelated to the rest of the plot. Dan might have been thinking, let's start with a bust, let's start with Slimer. He wouldn't have called it Slimer, but still. Let's start with Slimer's bust, and then we'll get to the rest of the plot. It's not totally wrong to think like that. There's another element to Dan's original concept that I want to defend. Ivan says the characters were all pretty indistinguishable, and that's a problem. But another thing about the characters was them being blue-collar, working-class guys. They don't own Ghostbusters. They didn't even make their own equipment. That sounds like a problem to us now, except it did make for a joke. Remember, the joke is, exterminators, except for ghosts. A real pest exterminator will know their poisons, but they probably didn't create the poisons they use in a lab, and they didn't build their own sprayers. Or a car mechanic knows how an engine runs, but they're not the engineer who designed it. Do you see what I'm driving at? The joke is how mundane the job is in contrast to the fantastic. How amazing is it that ghosts and gods exist, and the people in charge of saving the world are like Orkin employees. Actually, the real movie we got pulls off a neat trick. The three Ghostbusters at the start are all scientists, of a sort, so they're not really blue-collar at all. But when they open a business and talk about needing revenue, then they're being run ragged, they really appeal to that working-class vibe. The costumes help, that they're both kind of cool in our flight suits, but they're also jumpsuits that, you know, road workers or welders might wear. Yeah, so Dan was thinking these are blue-collar guys who do the job, but they're not rich and they're not celebrities. Ivan told him, make this an origin for the Ghostbusters, which means these guys need to invent the equipment. That led to Ivan actually suggesting the starting point that they should be supernatural researchers at a university. 
That's a really inspired choice and something you might think came from Dan or Harold, but no, Ivan was the one to point it out and say, they're studying the supernatural at university and they get kicked out. Then they think, hey, let's go into business for ourselves. Outside of Dana and the plot with Gozer, that's really the start of the movie right there, and Ivan Reitman figured it all out for Dan and Harold. So yes, a lunchtime meeting. This is May of 1983, by the way. And Ivan says, let's team up with Harold Ramis, make it a modern setting on Earth, and make this an origin for the Ghostbusters. Right after lunch, Ivan and Dan went to Harold Ramis's office. Dan actually says that at the time, Harold was looking at a different movie treatment that Dan had that was about the RCMP called Never Say Mountie. Dan told him to put that away and replaced it with the Ghostbusters material he had, so probably the drawings and all that. What I love about this story is that it sounds like a lot of people didn't really read what Dan had written. Ivan is the one to have read it the most carefully, as he was the one to actually make story notes. Harold might have leafed through, but he didn't really read this early draft. Why do I say Harold didn't read the script? Because Dan and Ivan came to Harold, showed him some drawings, and described the plot for 20 minutes, and then Harold said yes to the movie. That's it. I also love this, so many things happening on one day. Ivan Reitman called his agent Mike Ovitz. I zoomed by Mike Ovitz's name earlier this podcast. Mike Ovitz of CAA was the talent agent to the stars. He's a very important figure in Hollywood. Powerful, but not always a positive force. I'm going to do a mini episode about him soon. Speaking of Mike Ovitz real quick, a handful of people out there might have noticed I omitted an important part of the production story. Ovitz was always a part of Ghostbusters. When Dan Aykroyd was banging away at his first draft, he showed it to his manager, Bernie Brillstein, who may or may not have actually read it. I love that. Dan showed it to Bill Murray. Dan also forwarded the script and his material to Ivan Reitman through Mike Ovitz's office. I know, I know. I made it sound like he just handed it to Ivan himself. I apologize. But this was easy to do because Aykroyd, Reitman, and Harold Ramis all had Mike Ovitz as their agent. Hell, Ovitz was Bill Murray's agent before Bill famously ditched having agents altogether. So anyways, there's a lot of our important players right there. Stay tuned to the future when I talk about the importance of Mike Ovitz for Ghostbusters, and indeed all of Hollywood. But, back to our main story. Ovitz gets on the phone and gets Reitman a meeting with Columbia Pictures chairman, Frank Price. They had a short meeting where Ivan outlined what the plot would be, including all his recent changes to the plot. Ivan's pal, producer Joe Medjuk, was also present for the meeting with Frank Price. I think Ivan really likes telling this part. Price asked Ivan how much it would cost to make, and Ivan honestly had no idea. Stripes had cost $10 million, so Ivan figured Ghostbusters would probably cost three times as much, so either told Frank Price it would cost around 25 or $30 million. Ivan has given different numbers in a lifetime of interviews. That was a big budget, and kind of risky since it was a big-budget comedy, which often don't do well. But I love it that Frank Price said, sure, he didn't need to wait a day or anything. But, dun-dun-dun, Frank Price gave the challenge. This movie had to be ready for the summer of 1984, and this was for a special effects heavy movie that didn't have a script yet. Get to it, guys. Dan Aykroyd, Ivan Reitman, and Harold Ramis went to Dan's summer home in Martha's Vineyard for a working vacation. A nice setting, but a place where they could really hammer out the new script for Ghostbusters. But not just them. Dan's newly married wife, Donna Dixon, was there. I mean, they had just married like a month before this script writing vacation. Also, and this is really sweet, Dan invited Judy Belushi to the getaway. Now, part of this was because John and Judy Belushi were basically neighbors at Martha's Vineyard. I don't know if their homes were adjacent to one another, but they were certainly close. So Judy Belushi still had a home there, but this doesn't change the fact that Dan was still close to Judy Belushi and told her to come for this vacation time as well. I find that so sweet. Ivan was there. In the introduction to the book Ghostbusters Ultimate Visual History, Ivan mentions families tagging along, so Genevieve was there with kids Jason and Catherine. Their youngest, Caroline, wasn't born yet. And isn't that sweet too, everybody? Jason Reitman has been a part of Ghostbusters since the planning stages. And another kid was present. Harold Ramos was there with his first wife, Anne, and their daughter, Violet. Violet Ramos Steele confirmed this in her book, Ghostbusters Daughter, another book I'd recommend. It sounds nice. The guys were working on the script in Dan's basement. Violet says her dad was filling up yellow legal pads. 
Her mom, Anne, was an artist and would sketch landscapes, and Violet and a babysitter would swim and then get ice cream, and then usually the families would come together for supper at the Ackroyd house, and she'd call Dan Uncle Roy. Get it? Ackroyd. This went on for weeks. I generally won't be discussing drug use going forward on the podcast, including who took what when, building ghost puppets, and a lot of that. But yeah, the guys would often smoke pot while writing Ghostbusters. In Making Ghostbusters, Harold says that he and Dan generally wrote separately, and that Dan wrote five times as much content as Harold. Then they'd switch off and edit each other's work. From this, we sort of get the sense that Harold was really the one honing in on the best ideas, but who knows? And you also can't discount Ivan helping them out, who, remember, came up with the idea that the Ghostbusters should start out as university parapsychologists who then go into business for themselves. Eventually, they would leave Martha's Vineyard, and Dan and Harold, always with input from Ivan, would keep working until they were on script number four for shooting that October. That's four drafts of Ackroyd Ramus scripts, to be clear. But even back in May, time was so short that they had better get production going on the movie itself. Think of how nerve-wracking that must have been. To not have a finished script, and you still need to ask for pre-production to start on ghosts, special effects, and scouting locations. Ivan knew he needed people on the job. Joe Medjic, who had helped produce Stripes, and Michael C. Gross had been invaluable for heavy metal, and was really good at coordinating artists, so even though this was live action, he'd be repeating that role again. And by the way, Gross had also helped design some of the things in Harold Ramis's movie, National Lampoon's Vacation. Vacation wasn't even out yet in 83, and here its director, Harold Ramis, and an artist-designer, Michael Gross, were already working on another movie. Let's talk about those special effects, which needed to be up and running as soon as possible. We got a problem, everybody. Industrial Light and Magic was booked solid. Hollywood's most famous visual effects company, you know, the one founded by George Lucas for Star Wars, was finishing up Return of the Jedi, working on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Star Trek III, and NeverEnding Story. If Columbia Pictures had wanted ILM, they should have made a reservation. Ah, but the stars aligned. See, one of ILM's top men, top men, was Richard Edlund. In fact, Richard Edlund is just an important person all around. A technical wizard, in the late 60s, he and partner Wayne Kimball created the first manufactured, battery-powered guitar amp. They built their prototype, housed it inside a fancy box that used to have a bottle of cologne. Then for some reason they started calling the volume dial on it a pig's nose, and their brand was born. The Pig Nose Portable Guitar Amp. You can still buy them today. But we are talking Hollywood. What was Richard Edlund's entree in the film industry? Oh, just Star Trek. Richard Edlund worked on the Enterprise flyby footage. I see some websites claim he actually filmed the Enterprise flybys himself, which I don't know, he might have, but he definitely rotoscoped and manipulated a lot of that footage. He was the real Scotty, actually doing the sparkly transporter effects. Everyone, Richard Edlund created the original Star Trek font. The word Star Trek splashed across space in yellow? That's by Richard Edlund. So Edlund was talented, and also worked on the other great American sci-fi show of the 60s, The Twilight Zone. Flash forward to the late 70s, and he's one of the original members hired by George Lucas to form ILM. Edlund was great with photography and miniatures. He's one of the people making the shots work as the Millennium Falcon and the X-Wings fly around. Remember in Star Wars when the Falcon is pulled into the Death Star hangar and it passes that rectangle of light? Watch how the lighting on the Millennium Falcon changes. It's so natural you probably never even noticed it. That's Richard Edlund doing that. That's his brilliance. A few years later for Empire Strikes Back, Edlund sounds like the person who really figured out how to make the Battle of Hoth work. Think about it. It's all snowy white background, and all the ships, the snowspeeders and the AT-ATs are gray. Against space, you can use the black to hide matte lines, but things that are white and light gray really stand out. That was incredibly hard to make convincing, but Edlin mostly made it work on screen. 
You know how some of the shots don't look entirely convincing with sort of an unnatural blurring effect happening? That's Richard Edlund using a blurring technique to obscure the matte lines even more. And he worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Poltergeist and Return of the Jedi and tons more. But coming off of Return of the Jedi, Edlund made it clear that he wanted to be in charge of his own projects. And in order to call his own projects, he needed to be his own boss. Boss. Hmm. That's a good name. So it's fortunate that right then, Columbia Pictures needed an effects studio stat. And thus was born Boss Film Studios. Well, actually, and some Ghostbusters fans overlook this, Boss was an existing company already. Before 1983, it was the Entertainment Effects Group. And its biggest claim to fame was doing effects for Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Entertainment Effects Group could never really get its financial act together, as doing Close Encounters meant they themselves had to turn down doing Star Trek The Motion Picture. Which, by the way, pissed off Michael Eisner that they said no. Michael Eisner maybe didn't understand, or did not care, that the company simply did not have the manpower and time to take on Star Trek, so then Eisner started being vindictive towards the company. <clears throat> well, regardless of the reasons, things were not totally working out for the entertainment effects group. Its founders wanted to sell the company, and Edlund wanted to start his own at the exact same time. Here's Richard Edlund at home. Oh, who's that? Columbia Pictures needing an effects house pronto for this film called Ghostbusters. Well, give me some capital up front and you've got a deal. Oh, one second please, someone's at the back door. Why, it's MGM, and they've got the same problem and need a company to work on the film 2010. Why, please, come on in. Mm-hmm, yeah. Columbia and MGM financed Richard Edlund so he could go ahead and buy Entertainment Effects Group. He updated a lot of their equipment, would change the company to Boss Film Studios. Actually, the name only changed after Ghostbusters in 2010 came out, but under Edlund, for all intents and purposes, you can just call it Boss Films. We'll cover more of the special effects work in the movie itself. Just looking at the future of Boss Films so you'll know, soon after Ghostbusters, they'd work on Fright Night, Big Trouble in Little China, Legal Eagles by Reitman again, they do Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Alien 3, Batman Returns, Waterworld, you guys, Waterworld. They did Harold Ramis' Multiplicity. Notably absent there is Ghostbusters 2, which we'll talk about on the podcast in due time. Some of their last films were the Harrison Ford film Air Force One and Starship Troopers. Richard Edlin closed Boss Films in 1997. The condensed version is easy to understand. Despite their great work, Boss was always a scrappy underdog to ILM and never had the same capital. And hey, what happened in the 90s? Computers doing CGI and, you know, a little movie called Jurassic Park? Edlund, who had worked since the days of Star Trek with optical effects and miniatures, didn't have the revenues to make the big switch to a mostly computer effects workshop, so he closed Boss. But, you know, it sounds like he was grateful that he could end it at the black and not go bankrupt. Oh, a final bit on Richard Edlund. If you ever see an interview with him in his office, he has tons of books on shelves, and you can see awards including the Oscars he's won. Right above his Oscars, he has a toy Marshmallow Man. I love this guy, keeping a Marshmallow Man right above his Academy Awards. That's great. Meanwhile, Michael C. Gross assembled a team of artists in Los Angeles to design the ghosts and equipment that would be seen in the movie. Please check back to my mini-episode on Gross and Joe Medjuk, because I talk about things including designing the no-ghost logo with Brent Boats. Remember that all these people were working incredibly fast. Plus, they've only been handed a general list of necessary equipment and monsters for the film, but they didn't have a finished script or a finalized list of things needed. At this point, if you were just told about Ghostbusters production and didn't really have confidence in the people involved, it'd probably be a safer bet to think the movie was going to end up as an expensive mess. Oh hey, just a few of the creatures really quick. Most, maybe even all the ghosts and monsters except one, were filmed in LA. Right? Because I think almost all the ghosts you see flying around the streets of New York were composited in. Like that blue ghost with the long arms coming out of the subway steps? That's a puppet in LA. The Marshmallow Man was in LA, of course. The one example I can think of that was actually in New York is the zombie taxi driver. That was by a young guy in his 20s, Steve Johnson, so maybe we should talk about him here. He was a pretty new guy, and by 83 he had done makeup and had been a special effects assistant on The Fog and John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. Steve Johnson has his own YouTube channel, Steve Johnson FX, and I suggest you check him out. 
In a video series called Get Slimed from 2009, he said he approached Richard Edlund and wanted to be in charge of building a lot of the animatronics and puppets. Okay, Steve, it's crunch time. Can you build a convincing zombie puppet for this taxi scene in October? Well, he does it, and it looks pretty good. It's probably one of the scarier things in the movie. Okay, Steve, you can go work on building more. Once in L.A., Steve Johnson would end up bringing the monstrous form of the librarian to life. The librarian ghost was designed by Bill Wrightson, remember, co-creator of The Swamp Thing, and who had also worked on heavy metal. But Steve Johnson built the librarian ghost, the blue subway ghost I mentioned, and Onion Head, or as we'd call him today, Slimer. Special effects artist Randy Cook would build the Terror Dogs and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Randy Cook would later work on Fright Night and all the Lord of the Rings movies. Peter Jackson liked him so much, he made Randy Cook the second unit director when making the 2005 King Kong movie. I just wanted to touch on how much work there was to be done. I haven't even talked about the sets and the equipment and the ins and outs of some of the puppets. We'll get to that when we look at the movie itself. I just wanted to point out that the clock was ticking and the script wasn't even finished yet. I should be talking about dozens of individuals, but I'll just touch on two more. The cinematographer for Ghostbusters was Laszlo Kovacs. Born in Hungary, he was a university student in Budapest during the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. Hungarian students were fighting for freedom and an end to corruption, and the Soviet Union came down on them even harder than before, killing between two and 3,000 people. It was one of the big examples in the 50s of the Soviet Union cracking down and not lifting citizens up like they wanted the world to believe. Important history, but not for us today. Laszlo Kovacs escaped Hungary partly to show the world what he had been documenting, and he eventually was able to show his footage on CBS. Living in America, Kovacs mostly worked on low-budget, exploitive films. Frankly, they were of the same kind as Ivan Reitman's own Cannibal Girls. But Laszlo Kovacs gained notice after he worked on a little movie in 1969 called Easy Rider. A Columbia picture, by the way. Kovacs would then do work on higher-profile movies, if not always successful ones. I mean, he was cinematographer on that 1981 Lone Ranger movie. Man, every couple of decades, people try and fail to bring back the Lone Ranger. But Easy Rider and then Ghostbusters seem to be the two highest-profile movies Kovacs ever worked on. But just sticking with our people, Kovacs would work with Ivan Reitman again on Legal Eagles and for Harold Ramis in 1996 on Multiplicity. Laszlo Kovacs passed away in 2007. I want to share this, though, and I don't know if other Ghostbusters fans have ever picked up on it. From a 1996 episode of The Simpsons, A Fish Called Selma. Selma's gonna have a star right next to mine, so watch out, Laszlo Panaflex. Ah, so Troy McClure is talking about the other stars in this faux Hollywood boulevard. The gag is that there are Panaflex cameras made by Panavision, but the Simpsons are suggesting someone had the last name of Panaflex and invented that camera, which is ridiculous. But you can see what I'm getting at. So they have this joke, and they needed a first name for their Mr. Panaflex. Hmm. Anyone know some cinematographers? Hey, Laszlo Kovacs has an unusual name for Americans. Okay, use Laszlo. Laszlo Panaflex. And sure enough, they were using Panaflex cameras on Ghostbusters. You can see this if you ever see a photo of the camera crew at work. A final person I want to touch on, John DeKeer. Was he the oldest person working on Ghostbusters? Born in 1918, he was the art and production designer for many classic movies. If you've ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's 1942 film Saboteur, one of his earliest American films, John DeKeer was one of the people doing matte paintings for that movie. He was art director and production designer on movies including Cleopatra in 1962. Think of that, of Cleopatra's parade into Rome on a giant platform with a sphinx. DeKeer designed much of that, with help of course, but still, it's amazing. And The King and I and Hello Dolly. Speaking of which, he won Oscars for those three films. The King and I, Cleopatra, and Hello Dolly. And they got him to do Ghostbusters. A lot of it was set design, so the hotel hallways and the apartments and connected hallway. The interesting or unusual thing about the apartment sets is that they actually were connected. You would have thought that they could all be separate, but Dakir designed, and his team built, basically Lewis and Dana's apartments with the connecting hallway. But the real showstopper was Gozer's Temple, which we'll discuss in more detail on another day. 
I don't know if it's me reading into things, but you can almost feel that connection to John DeKeer's older Hollywood roots in that set. I mean, if you change the New York backdrop, the Gozer set wouldn't be out of place in Cleopatra. What with its stone architecture and massive gateway? Ghostbusters would be John DeCure's final movie he was heavily involved in. He would actually design things for Hunt for Red October, but my understanding is he wasn't super involved in that production like he was for Ghostbusters. Huh. Hunt for Red October was another movie Boss Films worked on, so I wonder if Richard Edlund asked for his input on that. Or maybe I'm reading into things. In any case, Ghostbusters was John DeCure's final big project, and he passed away in 1991. You may have noticed, there's someone I've been mostly ignoring in all this story. Someone we need to get back to. William James Murray. Since the big success of Stripes in 1981, he hadn't been entirely shining movies and television, but in typical Bill Murray fashion, he also wasn't really trying to advance his career, not in the way you'd expect most actors would anyway. By the way, I don't think anyone entirely understands Bill Murray. Apparently, not even his friends always understand his thought process. But I think enough people have made the point that for all his eccentricities, good and bad, Bill might have a healthier understanding of celebrity than a lot of other big stars. That is to say, he does his own thing. So what had he been up to? Well, in 1981, he married Margaret Kelly, who went by Mickey, and they had their first son in 1982. So Stripes came out in June of 81, and in December that year, he returned to SNL to host a second time. That ended up being a big deal, because he wouldn't return to Saturday Night Live again until 87. In 1982 and 83, he only did a handful of TV appearances, and most of them was so he could be with friends. He was with a giant cast for a Steve Martin special, he made his one appearance on SCTV, and on February 1st, 1982, he was David Letterman's first guest on Late Night at NBC, which would be a running thing for years with Bill Murray, even being Letterman's first and final guest for The Late Show at CBS. Oh, there's one more TV show I might as well mention here, Square Pegs, the very short-lived high school sitcom that starred Sarah Jessica Parker. Bill Murray appeared in one episode as a crazy substitute teacher. But again, Bill was doing it because he had a personal connection. Square Peg's creator was Ann Beats, who wrote for National Lampoon, not to mention directly with Ivan Reitman for the Lemming stage show. Hey, if you watch A Futile and Stupid Gesture again, she's portrayed by Natasha Leon. She's the woman humiliating the construction workers when they try catcalling her. That's supposed to be Ann Beats. Anyway, Ann Beats wrote for the first five years of Saturday Night Live. So there you go. She was a National Lampoon... SNL writer who Bill knew, so she asked him to come do a guest spot on her TV show Square Pegs in 1983. So yeah, Bill appeared in only a handful of TV shows since Stripes in 81. But there is one movie Bill signed on to do, Tootsie, starring Dustin Hoffman. Tootsie seems like a bit of a sidestep in our story of getting to Ghostbusters, but it makes sense in a lot of ways. Mike Ovitz, remember the CAA talent agent? Well, Mike Ovitz wasn't just Bill Murray's agent, they also became really good friends. And hey, I'll be covering Mike Ovitz in more detail another day, everybody. But before Bill Murray, one of the biggest actors Ovitz ever signed on was Dustin Hoffman. It sounds like Ovitz set them up to meet. One night, Ovitz made sure Bill Murray and Dustin Hoffman met for dinner or at a party or something, and Murray and Hoffman became friends. When Tootsie was coming together, it was really organized by Ovitz in a lot of respects. Ovitz took it to Frank Price at Columbia Pictures because he respected Price more than most of the other executives. He encouraged Dustin Hoffman a lot, and he badgered Sidney Pollock into directing it. Bill Murray was definitely brought in either at Ovitz's insistence, or Hoffman asking Murray to do it, and even then, Ovitz was such a schemer, you can picture Ovitz planning for Hoffman to want Murray in the movie. And even though they wrangled him, Bill Murray was still an enigma. He refused to be credited in Tootsie. Okay, okay, we're getting into how Bill Murray becomes part of Ghostbusters. So Mike Ovitz, super agent, has all these guys under his roof. Reitman, Aykroyd, Ramis, even Bill Murray. Should be a no-brainer for Bill to sign on to do Ghostbusters, right? Well... Bill hesitated. He and friend John Byram had been working for a long time on a script to The Razor's Edge, adapting the Somerset Mom book. By the way, if you've noticed that I've covered movies like 1941 and Space Hunter but not Razor's Edge, there's a reason for that. 
I might circle back someday and cover Bill Murray's career as a whole. Bill had read and fallen in love with The Razor's Edge, at least since 79. He even mentions it by name in Meatballs and obliquely in Stripes. Apparently, he and Byram had taken their plan for a new Razor's Edge movie around to studios, but had been turned down. Now was the perfect time to get some leverage. Bill would play Dr. Venkman in Ghostbusters, but Columbia Pictures also needed to fund his Razor's Edge film. In a 2014 Vanity Fair article by Leslie Bloom, Frank Price says that the only way Bill would commit to Ghostbusters was if Razor's Edge got the go-ahead. Price considered this, then agreed. But even here, Murray gave Frank Price an added wrinkle. Bill refused to sign contracts saying he would do Ghostbusters in exchange for the Razor's Edge production. This fact isn't often commented on, because ultimately Ghostbusters went ahead just fine, but it sounds to me like Frank Price was taking Bill on a matter of faith. Potentially, Bill could have filmed Razor's Edge, then it would come time to film Ghostbusters in the fall, and he would just not show up, and Frank Price and Columbia would probably have no legal recourse against him. So that's the extra bit that would have given me pause if I was Frank Price. The 25 to $30 million production would have been enough to have me a bit nervous, but then to have your star refuse to commit to the movie in writing, and the time frame here doesn't allow for any mistakes. Phew. I think Frank Price is a braver man than I. But it all worked out, of course. Bill and John Byram had a final or nearly final script ready to go, so they flew off to film Razor's Edge around the world in Europe and India. Again, I hope to cover that movie on its own someday. Bill called Ivan one time in 1983 while he was off filming Razor's Edge. In making Ghostbusters, Ivan says Bill called him from the Taj Mahal to say hi, and Ivan gave him the date and they'd be filming in October. Bill said just, okay, see you then. By the way, that same day he also called his pal Mike Ovitz. When Mike Ovitz didn't believe where he was, Bill handed the phone to other people passing by and, yep, yeah, he's in India. So, zooming by the summer of 83 and Bill is off filming his passion project, in the fall, he actually flew back to the States and landed in New York. I believe this was the time Bill was on a private flight, and he showed up at the airport with a bullhorn, just loudly saying jokes to people and playing sound effects. Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis actually went to the airport and picked him up, and that was the first time they actually talked about the movie that they were doing. Bill got fitted for his jumpsuit, and they actually filmed one of the scenes of the three Ghostbusters running down the street in uniform. Ivan says that's the story of him getting a little shiver at seeing the guys, and he realized that they had something special going on. But then Bill flew off to Paris again to film a few more scenes of The Razor's Edge and look over how the edit was coming. Again, imagine if you're Ivan Reitman or Frank Price. 25 to $30 million riding on this, and you want your leading man to get familiar with the role and get prepared to be a Ghostbuster? He showed up briefly, but instead of learning lines on his multi-million dollar project, he just flies off to Paris for two weeks, right up until you start shooting. I mean, I know Ivan was used to this, what with meatballs and stripes, but it's still nerve-wracking. But then Bill flew back to New York again and started shooting in late October. Hey, just in time for Halloween. He might have been hard to pin down, but Bill Murray was finally going to be a Ghostbuster. Ah. It's kind of funny for me to jump over the actual filming of the movie. I can just say, then they filmed it. The end. But really, it makes sense to talk about the filming as we watch the movie together, so we'll actually cover a lot of that later. But in short, they were filming in New York for three and a half weeks, so around the middle of November they packed up and headed to Los Angeles. They were filming there into February, so the entire shoot took over three months. And just think about that. Filming is done in February, and the movie is coming out in June. Boss Films had four months to get some of the special effects ready. Oh boy, this is going to be close, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. And whether you're super familiar with Ghostbusters production or not, I hope you at least saw some things in a new light. Coming very soon, we'll have a real grab bag of things to talk about. Facts and music and promoting the movie, lots of good stuff. And then we'll wrap up with two episodes on the movie itself. I'm Ross May, and you can talk to me on Twitter at Ross May Writer, or go to RossMayWriter.com to find my email there. I'll talk to you later, but for now, we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way.